If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're not sure if a manuscript is royal, it isn't, because when they are, they are simply breathtaking. And here is a book that is dripping with gold. It's absolutely an astonishing display of wealth and money and royal opulence. That was Christopher de Hamel talking about historical manuscripts. The First World War is not, although it obviously was on some occasions, a, a harmonica playing corporal and a public schoolboy with bum fluff um, standing waist deep in mud for four and a half years without a break. And that was Jonathan Ruffle on the First World War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our second podcast of June 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Christopher de Hamel, who is the winner of this year's Wolfson History Prize. Awarded annually since 1972, the prize from the Wolfson Foundation recognises exceptional works of academically rigorous but accessible history. Its past winners include some of Britain's most celebrated historians, 
including Mary Beard, Anthony Beaver and Ian Kershaw. Christopher de Hamel, Fellow and Librarian of Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, was awarded the latest prize for his book Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts, which sees the author explore 12 fascinating historical documents. Our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met up with Christopher at the offices of his publisher, Penguin, to find out more. Your book, Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts, has um, been awarded the Wolfson History Prize, which recognises the best in accessible history writing. Um, Why is it important for you to make history and uh, these these remarkable manuscripts more accessible? Uh, I think I have to say I was absolute... I think I can really genuinely say I was not expecting to. Um, I'd met my my fellow fellow, um, people on my fellows on the shortlist, all of whom have written proper and serious history books. And then there was a um, a big reception last week at Claridge's and we were all invited to bring guests to, to watch and they all turned up with their families and their, their, their departments to watch. I didn't invite anybody. I mean, I'm so sure that I was there merely for a, a formality that I just turned up with the expectation of, of leaving. So I have to say, I genuinely was not expecting it. Um, and of course, I'm delighted. It seemed to me that what I have written is not pure history. The others on the shortlist for this award had written what I would regard as proper history books on historical subjects. This is more a book about how history is done, how you do it, how you go out and look at raw material in libraries and archives and what it can tell you. It's not exactly uh, a single period of history being discussed. So I think it's an unusual, an, an unusual choice for them to have opted for this. Um, And it's written, or it's meant to be written, in a kind of conversational style. I hope it gives the impression of having been just tossed off conversationally, but believe me, every sentence has been sweated over for months, trying to make it um, as if the reader was coming with me on a trip off to Paris, Munich, New York, Los Angeles, wherever it is, to look at manuscripts, sit down beside me and let's just talk about them. Look at this, look at this. And as you do so, you start to notice things that no one's ever noticed before. So would you be able to just introduce us to the 12 manuscripts very briefly that you feature in uh, Remarkable Manuscripts? Well, after a great deal of thought and trials both ways, we've actually put them in chronological order. So you start off in the 6th century. And for convenience, I began with the Gospel book of St. Augustine. Um, I say it's convenient convenient for me because it belongs to Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. So I am, I am at this moment its guardian and I've lived with it uh, daily for um, 17 years. Um, but it's the first book known to have been in England. And it has a certain, and it's the earliest illustrated gospel book in the Western tradition. So it's enormously important manuscript, probably the oldest object in England that's not archaeological. And it has a um, has a role in the modern world in that it's the book on which the archbishops of Canterbury take their oaths of office. So twice I've taken it down to Canterbury Cathedral and, um, and have sworn in an archbishop on it, which has a certain certain thrill. Um, so th- we then go from that, which is of the 6th century, to the great Codex Amiatinus, this vast Bible written in Northumbria uh, 100 years later. But in reversal of the Gospels of Augustine, it is sent from England to Italy, and it's still in Italy, um, where it's now in Florence and where I went to see it. Um, then for the 8th century, we move to the Book of Kells, which is really one of the greatest of all, all manuscripts. Um, now, um, seen by hundreds of thousands of people every year in its glass case in Trinity College, Dublin, but extremely difficult um, to 
um, to handle in the original because there are so many, so many um, reproductions and facsimiles of it, um, and it really is an object of state. And 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 how that affects a manuscript and and the the hoops one has to go through to to see it are actually part of part of the story then, and, and, and how this book, just a mere book, really has become a symbol of the Irish nation. Then for the uh, 10th century, we move on to a, uh, a manuscript in the Pierpont Morgan Library in New York. I quite like the idea of having an American one in there, um, a, um, a commentary on the apocalypse with amazing illustrations uh, written by Beatus um, and made in Spain, Spanish illustrated manuscript. Then we move to the Bodleian in the 11th century and we look at... Um, a, um, a commentary on the book of Isaiah, you might think rather a dull subject, but actually a revolutionary text in the 11th century. And why? And here's a book that links itself in very much with the Norman Conquest. And when you really look at it, you realise that it was probably actually made in France and must have come over with the Norman conquerors um, and went from Bayeux, where I suspect it was made, to the Cathedral at Exeter, where it survived. Then for the 12th century, we go to Copenhagen and we look at an absolutely astounding Psalter. Uh, I have one of these sort of laws which I've enunciated there that if you're not sure if a manuscript is royal, it isn't because when they are, they are simply breathtaking. And here is a book that is dripping with gold. It's absolutely an astonishing display of wealth and money and royal opulence. And I have no idea where it was made. Um, it's either absolutely made in England or France or Scandinavia or none of those. And I just don't know. And how close you can get to it and how you can get it from different directions is itself part of the story. Then we move to something very different. Um, for the 13th century, we go to Munich and we look at the Carmen of Burana. Um, this is that text made famous by Karl Orff in his modern setting of it, which is completely unmedieval. Um, but little, little, little manuscript from a German monastery containing many of the earliest songs uh, in Latin, secular songs in Latin and sometimes in German and bits of French. For the 14th century, we look at the Book of Hours of Joan of Navarre, Queen of Navarre, daughter of the King of France, um, the first illuminated um, a prayer book made for a woman. Um, for the 15th century, or the turn of the 14th to 15th century, we go to Chaucer in Aberystwyth, um, wonderful library, um, and a fascinating, enigmatic manuscript that brings us so close to, to Chaucer. Um, then I, I as, as a sort of uh, uh, almost an afterthought in writing it, I've introduced one in Russia. This is in St. Petersburg, and it, it's an Italian Renaissance book on warfare, and there's a certain frisson in the fact that here's a book on how to fight a war, how to prepare munitions, how to, how to, um, how to arm a nation. Uh, that manuscript itself was looted during the wars in Italy in 1499 and was looted again during the French Revolution and is now in all places in Russia. Um, and then we end up in the 16th century with the Spinola Book of Hours and the Getty Museum in California, one of the greatest Netherlandish books of the late Middle Ages, which, for various reasons, I argue, was probably made for uh, Queen Margaret of Navarre. And it sort of takes me back to where I began at Sotheby's because it was... I was there. I was in the room when that book was first discovered. Um, I was the first person to turn its pages and recognise what it was 45 years ago. Um, and now it's one of the most famous manuscripts in America. Uh, why did you choose these 12 in particular? 
We tried to come up with a list of fairly wide-ranging kinds of manuscripts. I think most people think the Middle Ages consist entirely of Bibles or prayer books and, you know, all of the late Middle Ages. And many of the famous manuscripts do belong to the very end of the period. But we tried to choose a wide range. So there's effectively one from the 6th century, one from the 7th, one from the 8th and so on. So one from each century, from the 6th up to the 16th. And um, we also looked for ones with quite a wide range of subject matter. We also tried to find ones in different places, so um, as wide a range of kinds of library where these things are. Um, People often wonder how many medieval manuscripts there are in the world, and I have absolutely no idea, but I would guess about two million, um, something like that. And to choose 12 out of two million is, uh, I mean, you're, you're picking them out almost at random. In fact, in the course of writing it, I changed a couple um, just to try and get the uh, the spread wider. Um, they are remarkable manuscripts, but as far as I'm concerned, all manuscripts are remarkable. And we could have done a book on 12 horrible manuscripts. And it would have been just as fascinating. Um, take any book. Every manuscript is, is, is different from every other one. They're rather like meeting people. Um, some people are famous and some aren't, and they're all interesting. And you could take, you could take any manuscript, any one, any 12 of that, two million would have done. And in the book, you do liken these 12 manuscripts to meeting celebrities. You kind of invoke that um, aura of being in the presence of something very special. Why is it important for you to um, share these manuscripts with other people? I think we all know that there is a certain fascination about meeting a very famous person or even standing on a very famous famous spot, going to visit the pyramids or the um, the Great Wall of China or uh, standing in front of the Mona Lisa. Um, and the way that people take photographs of themselves doing it is that kind of sense of being in the presence of something that's that's great. Uh, manuscripts, although they are an enormously important part of our, our, our written culture for one and a half thousand years, are not as accessible now as, say, the great cathedrals or the great architectural monuments or even many of the great paintings. Um, they are necessarily fragile and kept in libraries. Um, and so there's a little bit of that kind of fun of, come along, I'll show you what it's like and uh, imagine you are experiencing this. I myself would probably never be allowed to see the cave paintings in Lascaux in France, though I'd love to, because they are extremely important and fragile and vulnerable. And the same applies to manuscripts. So the idea was really that this shares the experience of what it's like when you actually hold in your hands something as important as the Trévisure, the Duke de Berry or the Book of Kells. You know, how does it actually feel when you are in the presence of it? Uh, and when you um, take readers on these visits with you, you detail the, the various hoops you had to jump through to visit many of these manuscripts and handle them. Yeah. And you, you um, spoke uh, on your feeling of white gloves to handle the manuscripts. Some libraries, usually the smaller libraries, um, make you wear gloves to handle manuscripts. Most of the world's big libraries no longer do that. It's no longer really the thing. In my experience, and I've been a um, curator of a major library of manuscripts for more than a decade and a half. Um, we don't make people wear gloves. Um, clean hands, I think, are important. Um, you've got much more control with your fingers. Turn the edges of the pages. Don't put your finger on the illumination. I mean, it could damage it. Um, be careful. But with gloves, you have less control. You're using pencil 
rather than ink. And if you're writing with pencil with gloves, uh, the lead tends to come off on the end of the glove because it's material. Um, and it can happen then that, um, that a lead-stained gloved finger turning a page can actually damage it more than a clean hand on the edge of it. Um, I don't like wearing gloves. And it, it's, not, it's not quite, it's sort of silly, but it's not quite the same as actually touching the object. Um, shaking hands with a celebrity wearing gloves is probably not quite the same as hand-to-hand. So when you consider these manuscripts, you're obviously looking far beyond the text. What else are you looking for? I kind of want to know everything about a manuscript. I suppose I'm primarily an antiquarian um, as much as a straight historian. I'm interested in books for their own sake. Um, I want to know um, where they were made and when and why and how and what for and what's in them and what language they're in and why they're like that and whether they have pictures and who painted them and where they were done and what they cost and how long it's took and, 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 and where they've been and, and the kind of whole history of culture, material culture, um, how these things have survived, um, what they were for, why they were made. Um, what they actually say is part of it, but it's not everything they've got to say. Another factor that um, comes across in your book is the scale of these manuscripts and what that says about their origins and their previous owners. For instance, you, you describe the Codex Amiatinus as a colossus. Um, how does the, the size of the books relate to the, that status? One of the problems with studying any work of art um, from reproductions, not from the original, is you often have no idea how big it is. And, and that applies to everything from painting. I mean, if you if you study art history entirely from art books, you tend to think they're very small or or, or, or from slide lectures, they may be enormous. And um, and But that sense of scale and the size of a book, um, most medieval books are restricted by the size of medieval animals because they're mostly made of animal skin. So it is very rare to get a book bigger than a large sheep. The largest one we describe here is the Codex Amiotinus, which is about um, two and a half feet high. But it's almost a foot thick, and it's the thickness of it that makes that book so extraordinary. It's a single volume. It contains the entire Bible uh, written out. Written out as a single volume, and it was rebound recently. And thank goodness they've kept it as one volume. You get that real sense of the massive weight and presence of this thing. Um, And then they go right down to these little tiny, delicate books of ours, which um, can be a small and as light as a pack of playing cards. And what that tells you about what the book's for, um, a big one is put on a lectern. It's, it's for public use. It's for, um, it's for reading by more, sometimes for reading by more than one person at once. A little private prayer book or a little book of, um, book of devotion or, or, or a private ready reckoner for a merchant is something you slip in your pocket. Um, you can read in bed, uh, something you can read in the garden. That, that sort of feeling of, purpose, I think is reflected in size. But yes, but I think that the appearance and the shape and the size um, of a book tells you something about its use. I think it's also worth saying perhaps that in the Middle Ages, people had a very strong sense of the hierarchy of things, Um, that in a, uh, a medieval picture, a king is shown big or God is shown bigger than an angel, an angel is shown bigger than a, than a person, a king is shown bigger than a lord, and a lord bigger than a peasant. Um, you get that very much, say, in the Bayeux Tapestry. And, that, and, and, and a cathedral is bigger than a parish church, and a parish church is bigger than a little chapel. That, that's a gradation of importance expressed by size. And I think you get that a bit in manuscripts. A really grand, big, impressive book made for a king is likely to be bigger than a little one made for someone like you and me.
What does it tell us about the people who were the scribes of these manuscripts? Well, it tells us various things. I mean, first of all, the word manuscript just simply means written by hand, manuscriptum. And these are all made by hand. They're copied by hand, not because they wanted to do them by hand. It's not a kind of conscious craft movement, um, but simply because there was no printing. Printing came in in the middle of the 15th century. And many of those early printers were we know bits about them, um, had themselves been scribes before. So when printing came in, many of them welcomed it. Here was an opportunity to make books much um, much faster, uh, more accurately than they'd ever been able to do by hand. So these are copied by hand. And every book at the moment of writing it has another copy of the same text in front of front of you, um, unless you're actually composing a text, unless you're actually the author. Um, so it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, and every manuscript is copied from a, a previous one. And it is human nature that when you're copying something, you will make mistakes. People do. We all do. You transcribe something. You may notice, and you may correct it. Um, you may not notice. Um, and the next person who copies that same manuscript doesn't know it's a mistake, and he copies it, and he makes that that copying mistake that you've made, and it goes down the line. But he then makes another mistake, but he corrects something else against the other. And you get these kind of complicated family trees of the descent of a text in which you can see uh, mistakes occurring and then being corrected against each other. And they are... Um, tremendously fascinating, utterly obsessive. Um, to those who understand the history or who are interested in the history of the survival of a text, they are, it's extraordinarily fascinating to see how a text gets transmogrified and changed and corrected and falls into little families and clusters of text. Um, it's either extraordinarily interesting or complete waste of a life, but I personally find it fascinating. There's almost some detective work that goes into it, particularly in one of the chapters in the Hingrod Chaucer, when you look into the scribe of that manuscript. Oh, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, if you're a modern editor now of any text, but say a great, great text of literature, uh, such as, say, um, the Canterbury Tales of Chaucer or the uh, Divine Comedy of Dante, um, there are no autograph manuscripts of either of those writers. And... What you really want to do is to get back to as close as you can to what the author actually wrote. And of course, each time you copy a manuscript, as I say, you're going to, it will inevitably pick up the odd, the odd little mistake, misunderstanding, mistranscription, um, correction by a later editor, improvements by somebody who thought they could do better. And the kind of ultimate objective for an editor now is to get back as close as they can to the author's own words. And there were two manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales, one in California, um, in the Huntington Library, near, near Los Angeles, um, and one in the National Library of Wales in Aberystwyth, which are written by the same scribe and date from the very, very beginning of the 15th century or the turn of the years around 1400. Um, and both of them, for various textual reasons, appear to be extremely close to what we imagine the author's original would have been. They are not in the handwriting of Chaucer himself because one of them mentions that Chaucer is dead. So by the time they've finished copying the one in Wales, he's already dead. Um, but Chaucer died in the year 1400 and they are as close as we're ever going to get to the word of the author himself and the Welsh one. The Aberystwyth one is probably, probably is generally assumed to be the closest now, who the scribe is and how this was done and what was going on and whether this is done in Chaucer's household or whether it's being done by his executors after his death or whether he commissioned it himself, maybe from a 
family scribe or someone who'd been working for him. These are questions that people have worked on over and over again. And um, I have no absolute answers, but you can look and look and look. And as you look, you begin to see how corrections have been made and alterations done and bits of text have been moved around. And as you do that, you suddenly realise you're within a heartbeat of Geoffrey Chaucer. And it's kind of fascinating. These aren't treated as static artefacts and you don't look at them in one place. You trace their journey um, across the world and many of them have been moved. They're, they're neither static nor are they necessarily made at one moment. And unlike a modern printed book, which rolls off the press in a single, in a single stroke and all copies are identical, a manuscript is often the result of many years' work. And sometimes you can do a bit and it comes back again and is altered and changed and moved around and it must have been rather like a building, buildings now. Um, you put up a house and then you change your mind and you build an attic and then you, you build an extension and you knock down the garage and so on. And unlike the building, it's movable. So it moves around and it goes from one owner to another to another. Um, and manuscripts, unlike, unlike buildings, unlike archaeological objects, um, have not remained in one place. They are mobile and they're portable and you can move them around. Actually, and I only realised it when I'd finished, that of the 12 in there, only one, only one of the 12 is now in the country where it was actually made. And that can't be said, of course, of, um, of any building. I mean, every building is in the country uh, where it was made. Um, and tracing the history of these books, where they've been, who's owned them, is to me fascinating. And with a book, you can often trace the owner more easily than you can with almost any other artefact because, first of all, they're distinctive. Um, and so you can pick up descriptions of them in inventories and wills and sale catalogues. But also people write their names in books. Um, in particular, there's a connection of Jean de Navarre's hours. Um, there's an interesting 20th century connection there. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, Queen Jean de Navarre, she was um daughter of the King of France in the um, mid-14th century, and she owned this little, or commissioned this little prayer book in in Paris. Um, and part of the fun of it was tracing down what happened to it after her death. And it goes largely through the female line. Quite interesting. They're like um, mitochondrial DNA. It's the, it goes to the woman, to the woman, to the woman. It gets into the hands of the Duke de Berry, briefly, who gives it to the Queen of England, um, wife of... of um, Henry the Fourth, so it actually comes over to London, and it was in London in the early fifteenth century uh, when some additions were made. Then it gets itself back to a to a convent in Paris, and then uh, it gets borrowed from there and never returned. It then came to England um, again in the early nineteenth century. It very very nearly joined the Bodleian Library in the early nineteenth century, and something went wrong at the last minute. They tried to buy it for the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge in nineteen twenty, and the negotiations. Um, went wrong um, and eventually it was bought by Edmund of Rothschild of the great banking family who died in Paris in 1935 and his collection was looted by the Nazis during the war and for a generation and a half this was one of the great lost works of art and one of the things I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a small discovery but it's one that hadn't been made before um, I found in the archives in Paris the record of its theft um, in Paris in 1941 and it was stolen to the order of Hermann Goering, Goering himself, um, Hitler's number two. Um, and it was over in Germany. And then it was recovered from Germany, or it was found in Germany at Berchtesgaden at the end of the war, but not identified, um, brought back to France and wasn't actually recognised for what it was until the late 1960s. So you mentioned that of the, was it two million 
possibly medieval manuscripts that are in existence. Um, you've chosen these 12, although you mentioned earlier that you did think about swapping a couple in. Are we allowed to know what those couple were, the ones that came close? I suppose one could probably say the greatest the greatest omission, the great, probably the greatest manuscript in the world, which is not included here or not included in a chapter on its own, is the Très Richeur, the Duke de Berry. This is the great manuscript in the um, Musée Condé at Chantilly in um, north of Paris. Um, that famous um, illuminated book of ours, large book of ours, illuminated around 1416 by the Limburg brothers for the brother of the King of France with that famous calendar with those round scenes it'll be familiar to with the signs of the zodiac and the occupations of the month going on in the foreground. It's an absolutely astonishing object. And I have actually seen it. I've, I've turned its pages twice. Um, I didn't put it in simply because we had already got two other books of ours in there. Um, books of ours are this late kind of late medieval um, um, private person's prayer book, including the Hours of Joan of Navarre, which, as I say, I found had also belonged to the Duke de Berry. So I think there would have been too much duplication. Um, that one went out, though reluctantly. There are also some fantastically grand Ottonian gospel books, including one made for the Emperor Henry III, which is now in the Library of the Escorial um, in Spain, um, marvellous manuscript in a fantastic location. I would love to have written up a visit to the Escorial and to have seen and touched that manuscript. It's an amazing experience. But we already had two other gospel books in there and it would have, I think it would have meant too much duplication. You uh, mentioned in your epilogue that there are manuscripts that people can go and visit. You mentioned a 12th century Bible in Winchester, for example. Yes. What, what should people be looking for um, beyond the text when they go and, and look at a medieval manuscript for themselves? Well, part of the premise of this with which you began is that um, uh, medieval manuscripts are inaccessible to most people and we only have facsimiles and digitised versions. Um, and if, if there's any message that comes through, that's absolute nonsense. Manuscripts are available to anyone. And there are large numbers of great collections of illuminated manuscripts all across the world, no matter where you are. I myself began as a child looking at manuscripts in the Dunedin Public Library at the bottom end of New Zealand. And, you know, that's about as far from medieval Europe as you can get. And they were wonderful to me. Well, they're not not world-class manuscripts, but absolutely real. Many local collections and museums have them. Um, go around and ask for them, look at them. Um, the, um, the Bible in Winchester Cathedral is one of the world's great, great manuscripts. Um, they're probably not going to get that out of its glass case for you, but you can ask, you can try. Um, and um, you can also still, to an extent, you can still buy medieval manuscripts, um, the kind of 12 in that book are going to be, uh, hadn't been on the market for hundreds of years and would be enormously valuable if they did. But have a little look on eBay. You know, for £100, you could own an original leaf of a 13th century Bible and it's absolutely real and it's not a great object, but look at it closely. It's something you own and you take it home and you stare at it and you start to notice things that no one's ever seen before and you can see where it's been erased and corrections done and, and how the sequence of the work and where the scribe changes and how the little guide letters for the illuminator work and so on. And that that need not be more expensive than the cost of a good dinner. Do you remember or, or uh, recognise when that spark, when you were first interested in medieval manuscripts? When I was four, my father took a job in New, New Zealand and we went out there on a, on a ship. And um, 
As a schoolboy, I collected stamps. You know, my oldest stamp was about 1850, and I thought it unimaginably old. And New Zealand has wonderful natural history and wonderful um, um, human prehistory um, and an important place in um, colonial history. But what it really lacks is any equivalent of the Middle Ages. And the only things they can have there are things that are portable. And if, as a, um, a teenager in Britain or in Europe, you get interest in the Middle Ages, you can go and look at castles and Westminster Abbey and battlefields and so on, and there's plenty of it around, but there isn't in New Zealand. And one day after school, I stumbled on this little collection in the Dunedin Public Library, and I was absolutely blown away by them. Um, you know, these were things that were 500 years old, a 1,000 years old, and absolutely real, and I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And they were, um, to give them all credit, they encouraged me, as public libraries should, and they let me take things out of cases with care, um, and to copy them, and which I did badly. And it became, for me, it became a kind of schoolboy hobby. I thought these were just enchanting. And then in my holidays, I went around and looked at other manuscripts in other collections in New Zealand until I think I'd seen them all. And then I came back to England to do graduate work at university, specialising really in medieval manuscripts. And um, about the time I was finishing my thesis, um, I went up for a sale to watch a sale at Sotheby's and learnt that their catalogue of manuscripts had suddenly died. And through a fortunate chance of circumstance, I joined Sotheby's straight from university, and for 25 years I was cataloguing manuscripts for sale. Um, but that gave you an exposure to manuscripts which you'd never get in a, in a big library. Um, thousands and thousands of manuscripts must have passed across my desk one way or another and um, and you're turning everyone over and looking and looking and trying to find what it is about it that's kind of fascinating. Uh, so in this digital age that we're living in now, for you, what's the real significance of, of these manuscripts? As I say, I've been curator of, a, of the Parker Library at Corpus Christi College in Cambridge for quite some years now and we have digitised every manuscript. Every single manuscript is there is now um, available free. Every page of every manuscript is available free on the internet. It in no way has reduced the number of readers in the library. If anything, it's increased them. The more famous books are, the more people want to see them. Um, there are many things you use a book for other than merely reading the text, though I quite like the idea that somebody in Australia, say, could be editing a Parker Library text and we wouldn't even know. But the sense of the real object, the sense of actually meeting it and of looking at it and holding it in your hands and turning it against the light and noticing inscriptions and noticing uh, erasures and things you could never see in the original, um, uh, in um, facsimile. Um, and there is the thrill, the absolute thrill of seeing and touching and reading and using and examining and being in the presence of the actual object. You might say that um, all great works of art have been photographed. That doesn't stop people going to art galleries. You might say that uh, we all know what um, the, the, the Amazon rainforest looks like and we all want to go there. That sense of, of actually actually being part of it is, 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 is very powerful. Um, and these are real and they matter. That was Christopher de Hamel. Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. And in the US, it's due to be published this October by Penguin. And you can find out more about the Wolfson History Prize at wolfson.org.uk. Christopher de Hamel is going to be one of the speakers at this year's History Weekend events. Tickets for which are on sale now. 
The weekends are taking place in Winchester from the 6th to 8th of October and York from the 24th to 26th of November. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Our second interview this week is with Jonathan Ruffell, who created and co-produces the BBC Radio 4 historical drama series Tom Is, which has been following the course of the First World War at a century's distance. Tom Is has returned for a new tranche of episodes this month, and I spoke to Jonathan down the line to get the lowdown on some of the war stories that he's been investigating for them. For those of our listeners who may not have heard Tommy's yet, could you please just talk us through the concept of the series and the progress it's made so far? Well, we started on the 7th of October 1914, uh, except, of course, we started on the 7th of October 2014, because this is a real-time drama. Uh, When we say the events of the day, we mean exactly the events of that day. Um, We've drilled down in the history to get these stories. Um, We've drilled down into the war diaries and into the memoirs. And our characters, because, of course, we're drama, we go out in the drama slot, 2.15 in the afternoon on BBC Radio 4, our Our concept is that our dramatic characters in the drama are there in those events, but they just don't happen to be reported. In other words, they're they're there while that attack is taking place, but they're not actually mentioned in that particular war diary. So that's that idea of history to the day. We're a war procedural, a bit like a cop show is about, oh, the kit doesn't work. Oh, the management are terrible. Oh, the car won't start. In other words, the daily grind of policing. Well, we're the daily 
kind of soldiering because that's how people really experience soldiering um where uh, the real time aspect of course means that if you listen at home you will notice time pass you know you might think to yourself good lord these guys are back at this town in belgium called uh, la gorg they were there two years ago good lord two years ago we hadn't moved into this house we hadn't had this baby we hadn't bought that new car you you can see what i mean with that that idea of the real time changes for the audience and also of course noises i went to france i recorded the exploding of world war one ordnance so if you hear an explosion in tommy's you're actually hearing the sound your great grandfather or grandfather heard uh, sound from a hundred hasn't been heard for a hundred years and of course thematically we're really interested not in that old theme in a way which is war is hell we rather suspect our audience knows that war is hell we're much more interested in the paradoxes of war for example the lead one i suppose is the paradox of friendship and comradeship uh, there's death all around but the people involved in combat often feel that they're living some of the most real moments of community with the men they're with and women that they're with that they ever feel in their whole lives. If we could just talk about some of the new episodes that are coming up, um, one of them focuses on the war in East Africa. Could you just fill us in a little bit on this aspect of the conflict? Well, that's a good question because do, does anybody know about this amazing African story? I think there are two questions, actually. Does anybody know about this uh, as part of the First World War? And does anybody know about how this affected Africa? Because we're talking about a colonial war that's being fought on somebody else's ground in somebody else's country. For example, do we know um, the war directly or indirectly affected 50 million people in Africa? Well, I don't think we do. I think I think had there not been the First World War in Europe and we hadn't got Eurocentric history, then the war in Africa would have been the biggest story between 1914 and 1918. Do we know, for example, that 83% of local manpower was drafted into the army? Do we know that 10% of the 2 million Africans who fought in this campaign were killed? Do we know about the destruction of, of land equal to the size of the country of Germany? That's United Germany. This war not only is a colonial war, but of course it's an African war. And we've got to be very careful that in telling our story, we aren't, oh, look what the colonial soldiers did rampaging around this part of Africa. But what was the effect on the African soldiers and the African villagers and the actual people who lived there? Otherwise, it becomes white man's story. When in fact, if you look at the the money, the people, the place, everything, you know, the, the whole story is actually, of course, an African story. And so who would eventually emerge victorious in this aspect of the war? Uh, no one emerged victorious in this theatre. Um, you could you could reasonably argue, after all, the first bullet fired by a British soldier, British Empire soldier in the First World War, was fired by an African soldier uh, in Togoland in West Africa. Not many people know that. They rather assume it's some bloke called Alf in Belgium in, um, say, September 1914. But no, it was RSM Alhaji Grunchi um, who fired that first shot. He was in the West African Frontier Force. He fired that in the first week of the war in August 1914. And the war, in some respects, technically ended two weeks after the armistice in Europe because news travelled very slowly. And the German leader of their forces, General von Leto Vorbeck, he was never beaten. They never caught him. They never defeated him, although they chased him round and round Africa for four and a half years because uh, you can actually listen to his... It's in the Imperial War Museum 
him. It's in German, of course. You can listen to his victory speech when he returns to Berlin in 1920. So you can safely say that this was a war into which massive resources were poured, £23 billion, uh, 2017 equivalent uh, money was spent to prosecute this war. One of the reasons we don't know about it, of course, is because in, in technical terms, I suppose you could say the British lost. They chased this guy. They never caught him. Massive waste of life for nil return. One of the other reasons we don't know about it, of course, is because so many people died from illness, which isn't very glamorous. Very few set battles, although that's, uh, we're, I'm delighted to say, on the 7th of June 1917 slash 7th of June 2017, we do have a very dynamic story. We also probably don't know about it because, of course, it plays against the idea of imperialism because it was two imperial forces perfectly happy to have a battle on somebody else's patch. And for those reasons, I think the war remains a sort of rather ungraspable campaign. And if we don't watch out what we're doing, we can do that very Eurocentric thing of saying, oh, it was a sideshow. It wasn't a sideshow for the millions of people involved. So was this really a colonial conflict that kind of became part of the First World War or did it have a broader geopolitical importance? Yeah, it did have a broader geopolitical importance because if you look at that map, if you if you were up in that balloon way, way above the Western Front, you can immediately see how the Germans can only drain empire resources uh, by encouraging empire attacks on the Western Front. If they took their soldiers and uh, they operated out of their possessions uh, in Africa, they were able to prick at the British Empire at a sensitive spot. And therefore, the British Empire had to defend its possessions as they called them, obviously, in in Africa. And therefore, the the German war aim was to, where prior to the First World War, there'd obviously been the scramble for Africa, the desire for uh, um, land, but that in a way had been a carve-up between the various uh, white empires. But when the First World War starts, the Germans want to chip away at every vulnerable part of the British Empire to drag British troops away from the Western Front and make them fight elsewhere. And in that respect, this was a brilliantly fought campaign because very, very few Germans running uh, locally raised levies. Sometimes we use the expression a guerrilla war, but it's not technically right because a guerrilla war is fought with the support of the local, generally speaking, with the support of the local population. But that's not true in this case. What happened in this case, it's better to think of uh, the British and the German forces as armed bands sort of marauding through other people's countries. Of course, with no supplies whatsoever. Therefore, absolutely uh, killing the cattle, taking the supplies, the maize, the corn, basically raping the land. Did you manage to bring in the stories of any African individuals who took part in this conflict? It was absolutely vital that we did that because I think the way that we tend to look at colonial Africa is a fairly young man wearing ridiculously long shorts, a pith helmet and safari shirt, uh, sort of running Africa with his faithful black retainers. And that, that's an image that's been handed down to us. This war, however, was fought by British, Indian, South African, Belgian and African contingents. If you just focus on those last two, and these are the characters that we wanted to explore, are, of course, local people. The Tenga Tenga men, Tenga means to carry, Tenga Tenga, just by repeating the carry carry, they tried to emphasise how ghastly and how long and how never-ending the process of carrying everything through the bush was for the military forces. You could be uh, local and picked up and made to, <laughs> volunteered is the word, but normally conscripted or even pressed into fighting in the Ascaris, which were native local troops. But 
Those Belgian troops, they were from the Cameroons. Those African troops could be from Nigeria. And if you're fighting in West Africa, Nigeria is 2,000 miles away. It's not next door. It's as close as Cairo is to Nairobi. You know, you're talking about people coming thousands of miles. In fact, the some of the Nigerian guys, when they arrived in what we now call Tanzania, where a lot of the fighting took place, you know, they'd been on a ship. They'd gone round Africa. They'd been to they'd been to Durban. They, their ship had stopped off. They really thought they'd, you know, they were seeing something of the world. And I think that's a really good image for us to have. And we had to go, you know, glad to read, but put to one side. All the books that are essentially written from the white leadership perspective, because there's a very, very strong strand in this story about the German and British collusion in the general idea that the white man will look after himself as a way of not, during the conflict, handing over any sort of ascendancy or feeling of possible power to the locally recruited troops, or indeed these troops coming from other parts of Africa. And you'll find during the drama that we try and avoid that story and we try and home in on the words. For example, if you go to the Imperial War Museum, you'll find these remarkable books, uh, some are written by and some edited by Melvin Page. And these are books where he actually got the Malawian perspective, because of course a lot of this, Malawi is now the name we give to, to a part of this, this part of the world. And he actually got the what those people thought about what was happening, not purely the ruling perspective. I think that, that was very, very important. And the drama on that particular day is a classic microcosm of that. We've got a we've got the local Ascaris, who are the uh, the native levies. Those guys had fought for the Germans. There were actually examples of where British officers had to learn German so they could give commands to the local troops because last year they fought for the Germans and this year they're fighting for the British. And I think that's a that's a very nice paradox about how in this respect the First World War was fought as a white row overlaid onto the African continent. Um, it shouldn't be seen as an African fight in that respect. Another of the episodes within the new series focuses on the logistical aspect of the war. So I'm interested to know why you decided to cover this and how easy it is to make exciting drama out of logistics. It's not easy to make exciting drama out of a logistics uh, problem because well-done logistics, by definition, should be extremely boring. Now, if you're trying to write drama about something that when done well is boring, you act obviously have to look at the checks and balances that make such a thing happen. And if you look at the second episode, the 14th of June, 1917 slash 2017 episode, you'll be looking at an episode where we focus on one of the dull but vital raw materials of the war, which is wood. It's the wood you use uh, to line a dugout, floor a trench, or possibly, in this particular case, a beechwood slab, which you can make an instant road from. You lay them one after another. We're talking about socking great bits of wood here, of course. We're not talking about a stick. And you can make an instant road. Now, had they got those roads to Ypres, which I think notoriously we think of, and certainly in some phases of, of Ypres, it's completely correct, as a mud bath. Um, people tend to forget there were actually sunny spells, so sunny in the Battle of Ypres that shells actually bounced off the ground and they had a real problem with dust. But we tend to think of it as a mud war, the Battle of Ypres, often known as Passchendaele, and had they prioritised the building of roads, then things may have been very, very different. But, and our drama asks this question, why didn't they 
prioritise roads? Why didn't they do that? And of course, the reason, and the reason that it's dramatically exciting and interesting is it's the most human reason you can possibly imagine. And it's simple. I'm not letting the cat out of the bag here because we make this point early in this drama. The point is this. If you are a soldier and you have two trucks, one truck's got planks on it and one truck's got shells on it. Your mates further down the line are going into an attack tonight. Which is the truck you wave forward? You wave forward the truck with the shells in it. Of course you do. You would, I would, we all would. The problem was, of course, is that logistically they had to get the road stone, these beechwood slabs and all the amazing caterpillar tractor type resources to the front at Ypres. After very, very successful battles of Vimy and, and Messine, they were on a tremendous roll. They had seven weeks to do it and they barely got the firing end of the operation up the line. Just two roads through bottlenecks, seven miles, trying to move two cities, a city the size of Birmingham or Manchester, let's say, one city to the location of another city. And this logistical problem is what we try to tease out in that episode. And I hope, if you listen to that, and of course, I'm not mentioning the directing by David Hunter and John Culpante, I'm not I'm not mentioning the dramas written by Avin Shah and Nick Warburton and myself. What I'm focusing on here, talking to you, is the history. But we're looking at enlivening and breathing life into a logistics in fact, there is a micro joke, if you can permit me this micro joke. And that is uh, when we were said to the cast, uh, look, in, in some ways, the hero of this story, although it never makes it, the hero of this story is a beech wood slab. We don't want any wooden acting. And the cast, of course, gave that the, the groan you may well expect. How important do you think logistics was to the outcome of some of these battles, particularly, I guess, the Third Battle of Ypres? Well, we're, we're making that point, and I'm following up here, by the way, on the thinking of a military historian called Rob Thompson, who's really the expert at this sort of thing. This line of reasoning is that this lack of preparation, this essential idea, and we've all done it, we've all had a very successful couple of projects, and then we think, well, essentially, we'll kind of do that again. But people weren't looking at the difference between the Battle of Messines and the Battle of Ypres. The Battle of Messina had been two years in the planning. Uh, when they shelled it, they shelled it for something, something in the order of two weeks, ten days. But unbelievably, get this, unbelievably, they shelled one tonne of shells per minute, per hour, no, per second. OK, on a land feature that you could walk over in 25 minutes. They absolutely saturated Messina. They blew the very famous 19 mines on the first day of the Battle of Messines, which killed 10,000 German defending soldiers in an instant. Now you look at Ypres, what is Ypres? Ypres totally flat, there's no feature you can shell, and for the seven weeks between the end of Messines and the launching of Ypres, you've got to launch Ypres because summer's running out, the Germans have only got to do one thing, and that's dig in and defend Ypres, because they know we're coming, and they know that the clock is ticking. And of course, we weren't able to get the logistical resources north to Ypres in time for the attack, because the clock was ticking on the, the available time to do the battle. Another episode I wanted to talk to you about was a story that I didn't even actually think I'd heard before, which was of an attempted First World War D-Day style landing. What was the aim of this, and why did it not happen in the end? 
you and I have probably sat and looked at the map of Europe and seen this line going from the Belgian coast all the way down to the Swiss mountains. In fact, there was a joke the Tommies used to say that they were digging trenches to drain the Swiss lakes into the North Sea. Uh, and it's not a bad image, that, because it, what it tells you is that there's a line running and you've got to obviously go through it. Well, at one point, anybody who's looked at the map must have thought, well, hang on a minute, why didn't they invade round the top of it? Because after all, the Belgian coast is as flat as a pancake and uh, there's huge sandy beaches. Well, the Germans were defending it. They'd built this vast concrete wall with an overhanging lip. They got all the machine guns and, and artillery, you might expect. But the Allies came up with this extraordinary idea, which was to, as you've just said, do the D-Day of 1917. And the reason we don't know about it is because in common with thousands of different military operations, it never actually happened. But let's not underestimate the planning. The planning was uh, vast pontoons, enormous things, uh, much bigger than the um, the landing craft we might think of when we think D-Day and Saving Private Ryan. We're talking about things that are 500 feet long. We're talking about tanks that in very much an echo of D-Day were fitted with kit that enabled them to climb over that overhanging wall the Germans were using as defence. And one of the reasons they could do that was they built a completely fake wall to practice on using the plans of the bloke who'd actually come over the border from Belgium holding the plans. So they were able to build these things. Uh, they came up with a diversion operation just like the Second World War. Uh, they uh, were going, they convinced the Germans that the actual invasion, if it happened, would happen much further along the coast, much further up towards Holland. And then unbelievably, in a real echo, if you know your D-Day, with days to go for d day in the Second World War, they painted broad white stripes on all the aircraft so no one would shoot down a, a, an Allied aircraft. Well, unbelievably, just before they were preparing for this operation, they painted broad white stripes on the aircraft that were going to be involved in this one as well. So the question is, of course, is, well, or if it was so brilliant, why didn't it happen? Well, the reason was that the, the attack further south, which was going to be, that attack on Ypres we've just been talking about, that was going to go forward. And when that had reached a certain point, then it was appropriate for the landings on the coast. Otherwise, the land on the coast would have been hopelessly behind the German lines. Of course, if the Allied line had moved forward, they'd be more in sync with the line and they'd be able to drop down from the north and effectively attack the side of the German line. Well, of course, Ypres ground to a halt. They weren't able to press forward. And so, as so often happens, but you really have to go through the archive to find out, um, uh, there was a battle there uh, that never happened. But I think we can all look back on it now, and especially in the light of D-Day, the game changer that was, and think what would have happened had that occurred. They were frightened of seaborne landings in the First World War because, of course, they'd only done one, and it was at Gallipoli, and it had been a huge failure. So they really marshaled their resources. You look at the plans, you look at the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men involved, all the kit, the tanks with a special kit, blah, blah, blah. And you think to yourself, I bet that would have succeeded had that taken place. And how far advanced did the plans get? They weren't like D-Day on the 5th of June, 44. They must have been kind of earlier on than that. No, believe it or not, the last troops were stood down mid-October. The whole thing carried on. Um, so you can say, broadly speaking, that the Battle of Ypres fought from the 31st of July to the 10th of November. And some elements of that northern force of at least 100,000 men were held there for all that time because they were thinking they might be able to suddenly launch that attack. And indeed, had the Germans fallen back, the pontoons had been built, the plans had been put together, the soldiers were up there. But of course, as the drain on resources starts happening for 
further south, nearer to Ypres itself, they start pulling those soldiers and sailors out and start moving. Obviously, not the sailors; they're there to do with the with the seaborne attack. But they start bringing those soldiers further south to be part of what by that time is sounds a little unkind to say it, but an almost a sort of standard British army attack going in further south. And do you think if this seaborne landing had ever taken place, could this have been a game changer? Could it have brought the war to an end a lot earlier? I think it would have been a game changer, except, of course, it had to work exactly in sync with lots of other things as well. I think one of the things about D-Day in the Second World War is you can kind of rather see it as a very clear hammer blow. It goes in, it's a success, and then they push forward and they push into France, they push into Germany. This, however, had to be a much more synchronised attack with what was happening elsewhere because the German army were perfectly capable of moving hundreds of thousands or at least tens of thousands of men north to oppose a seaborne landing. Had the seaborne landing happened in sync with a localised move forward on the land along the coast, plus the major attack at Ypres, I think it could have changed the war because what they were trying to do, of course, was to get to the port of Antwerp, relieve all the pressure on the German attack on the Channel ports and, of course, make, at last, make the Germans fight on more than one front. And, of course, that's the aim of all combat. You want to make your enemy split his resources. And if they were facing an invasion coming south from the coast, they were facing what one might reasonably call a standard attack coming at them over the normal lines, then suddenly the Germans have got to use their resources in two separate places at once. But this is... This is not to say that they, you know, they weren't incredibly inventive, had ideas about this. I mean, they weren't, they weren't stupid. They'd worked out this was always a possibility. And unbelievably, I managed to find in the documents, this is an admiralty file, something I had never read about before. And when I floated it past some uh, electronic countermeasures people, they said, we've actually never heard of this either. So this is probably a bit of a Tommy's first here, which was the Germans had actually developed uh, effectively drone or UAV technology because they packed uh, an unmanned boat full of explosives. They controlled it by a seaplane flying, sending Morse messages back to a port way back on the on the Dutch coast. And that Dutch HQ sent pulses down, unbelievably, an unreeling telephone line out of the back of this ship, out of this boat, packed with explosives. And the fear, of course, when they exploded one of these in March, British on Newport Harbour, and the British thought, God, if we... If we have an invasion fleet, are they thinking of unleashing these unmanned electric motorboats, they called them, which will cause absolute chaos and huge loss of life in any invasion fleet? So you ask me, do you think the invasion would have been a success? Well, perhaps we might have seen uh, the invasion go ahead, but instead of it being a land battle, maybe they would have been defeated by the pontoons and all that amazing tech they got lined up for a seaborne invasion actually being sunk at sea by this new German UAV slash drone technology. Many of the things that you're covering in Tommy's are probably fresh to listeners or might challenge their views about the First World War. Is that one of the aims of the series, to give people a very different perspective of the conflict? The first energy is the First World War is not, although it obviously was on some occasions, is not a, a harmonica playing corporal and a public schoolboy with bum fluff um, standing waist deep in mud for four and a half years without a break. So the immediate urge with Tommy's is to deconstruct that idea. But then you start thinking about a world war, not purely a European war, and suddenly 
these extraordinary alternative stories begin to present themselves. Um, and of course, uh, it, it's it's the result of having inquiring minds working on the programme. You begin to think to yourself, there's some traditional stories we could tell here, but what about this absolutely extraordinary range of amazing stories to tell instead? That was Jonathan Ruffle. The next episode of Tom Is airs next Wednesday, the 14th of June, on BBC Radio 4 at 2.15pm. And meanwhile, you can listen to yesterday's episode on BBC iPlayer Radio. Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that the June issue of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. This month's edition includes pieces on Roman Britain, the Six-Day War, Letters from the Tudors, and Jane Austen, among many other things. You can get hold of our June issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do join us next time for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.